Welcome to the Robert A. Heinlein Book Club. Uh, and this episode, I think things are getting real here. I think um, with this episode, with this story I read, I think um, I think I'm starting to like connect some dots and and start to get a picture here of what we can say and do with with Heinlein besides just call him like the the Dean of Science Fiction or something and and refer to some of his famous stories or or whatever. I, I think. The, the pieces are starting to go into together a little bit here. And this story is just amazing. Um, so it's, it's not that I would recommend not reading the earlier ones, but if you just read this one story, I think this is really, really, really amazing. Not only is it prophetic about the Cold War and, and the nature of like mutually assured destruction and, and problems of the later 20th century, such as... Uh, nuclear proliferation and things like that. But it's it discusses the problem of power and the problem of empire and the problem of an empire kind of being accidentally thrust onto you, um, which is kind of America's position after World War II, where Europe was devastated and, and you know, there may have been people in the U.S. who, who were eager for that position, um, but by and large, the American people didn't, didn't want it. Uh, they entered World War II as isolationists, largely, um, and they kind of got ahead to get dragged into the war. But, but afterwards, they, of course, become this, this empire, this global hegemon. Uh, and so very much this is a story for our time, a story of, of our time, of, of what it's like to have one superpower and how you get there and how we interpret it and how we understand it. I think there's, uh, anyways, there's so much going on in this story that it really needs to be, be read and considered. Um, it's called Solution Unsatisfactory. And it was written in 1940, along with most of the other stories we've been reading. He's been basically churning out one a month. And then of course, during World War II, he, he stops writing um, and, and picks up again later with the juveniles and things like that. But you know, we're getting a story a month in Astounding or other, other magazines, mostly Astounding. And and for a while, he seemed to have been building this future history thing, but this one doesn't really fit into that narrative. It doesn't have a sequel. It's a standalone story, but it's really, really important. It builds on some things we've been talking before, like in blowups happen, particularly that one. But it's, um, or even roads must roll, or the where where we're really reflecting on the the nature of power, and what people, how people with expertise or or a particular knowledge get become indispensable because of their control of that technology. So let's jump into it. Um, so this, the beginning is just amazing. Uh, it starts like this. In 1903, the Wright brothers flew at Kitty Hawk. In December 1938 in Berlin, Dr. Hans split the uranium atom. In April 1943, Dr. Estelle Kartz, working under the Federal Emergency Defense Authority, perfected the Kartz orb technique for producing artificial radioactives. So American foreign policy had to change. Now the first two, um, I suppose, are drawn from history. I don't know about that splitting the Iranian atom thing. The last is 
of course, after the events and where after the story was written. So that's science fiction. But the idea of the plane, the airplane and atomic energy or, or, or atomic power, atomic weaponry combined changing the world. I mean, that's what happens, right? That's you have the weapon and you have the means of delivery. Those two things force a change in policy. It, it, it now war is capable of destroying humanity. And what do you do with that knowledge? What do you do with that power? Especially when it's a power that's public domain, essentially, right? It's, and that's still the world we live in. Nuclear power is, is public domain. Countries that don't have it could have it. They, they choose not to develop it, but there's nothing stopping them from. It's, it's not like it's a secret. Right. Um, you know, people would know it's happening and, and there's regulation agencies and non-proliferation treaties and all that. But it's, it's, you know, there's nothing really stopping proliferation as long as we have the state sovereignty. States be able to claim that they can do what they want within their, with their borders outside of perpetual warfare to stop it, which would only encourage more countries to do this. So that's the dilemma. The title, Solution Unsatisfactory, is exactly what it sounds like the solution to this dilemma is unsatisfactory. But is there an alternative? Do we get one? We don't get one in the text. Uh, well, maybe there's one alternative that's proffered, but it's rejected for reasons we'll, we'll probably get into later on in this tale. So our main character here is, is a, a Colonel Manning, Colonel Clyde C. Manning. Our narrator is uh, John DeFries. He's the narrator. So although we, our narr narrator is an important part of the story, the real main character here is Manning. Um, and Manning was a like a retired officer who got into politics. And that's how DeFries gets in the story. He's like an advice. He was like a failed professor or something. And then he uh, became an aide to Manning running for office. He's, he's considered like a liberal, but he's a bit old. And he's a bit grumpy, but he's... He's kind of a New Deal sort of liberal approach. Um, and he gets into politics. So there's, the parties aren't main named here, but he's essentially a Democrat, right? Just like our pre presidents aren't really identified or named, but it's Roosevelt and some successor. Kind of in my, in my head canon, I suppose. Um, and he was involved in chemical warfare before this. So that was the big thing in World War I. That's going to change war forever. Then it's going to be the tank is going to change war forever. Then the airplane is going to change war forever. All these. But that none of them quite reach the level of, of the atom bomb. Now, we don't have an atom bomb here. We have a dirty bomb. Uh, essentially, it's, it's called dust. It's like a chemical, a nuclear power chemical warfare, or nuclear-generated chemical warfare is what we're getting. It's just, a, it's just a dirty bomb. More danger than any, dangerous than any dirty bombs I know of that have been developed or used it's got a basically 100% kill rate and the space has been cast over so um, that's that's the situation you can replace this with with a real atomic bomb you can replace it with any kind of devastating doomsday device and the story still works anyways but that's where we are so he's uh, a he's like a, se a senator or congressman or something um, doesn't matter. And he gets the call from the president. World War One, Two is broken out, right? And of course, as this was written, World War Two's already been fighting. So Britain versus Germany is the picture we got here. Um, I think by the time this was published, France had already fallen too. So uh, the war we get is a world war, but it's, it's 
you know, Russia's place in it is, is not yet known. Heinlein didn't know Russia would enter the war and be attacked. Um, Heinlein didn't know the U.S. would enter the war. So, but he still imagines a war and occupy, occupied Europe by Germany, a war that Britain is losing. So anyways, Manning gets called into active duty and he's like, well, I got a, I got my, my, my constituents. I got to represent them. And the government's like, we got this planned out. So they basically drag a Republican and say, you're also drafted. Uh, and so the votes cancel up. So that is, you're going to serve. You can still represent your district, but you're not going to be there voting. So we pick one from both parties. So it evens out. It doesn't affect the politics. It doesn't hurt either party. All right, great. I think at the time, didn't the Democrats have a huge majority like coming off of the, the, the New Deal? Probably wouldn't matter anyways, but... But uh, Heinlein crosses his T's and dots his I's here on these political issues. He gets shoveled away and DeFreeze goes with him. Our narrator goes with him, uh, following him. And he goes to this special defense project number 3347. And this involves the use of research into U-235, into, into using uranium. Basically, the Manhattan Project is what he works on before there was a Manhattan Project. Um, and they do different studies and research into that. And they meet this doctor, Estelle Karst, the, the one who was mentioned in the first lines of the story, is the one who develops uh, this weapon. And they're doing the research. And, you know, they have all the precautions for radioactivity, the lead, the lead suits and the walls and the air conditioners and things like that. But there is, like, water runoff. And that water runoff is killing fish and so they're getting complaints from the local environmentalists saying you know whatever you're doing there is killing fish so the air has been purified conditioned on its way out but the water hasn't been and the water is is polluting and they're like well we need to maybe find a reservoir for it and deal with it so we're not killing the fish and the animal life anymore but manning kind of calls and says like i want you to start researching applications of this stuff and that leads to the development of dust of, of dust, which is how it's called here. Just it's, it's, it's radioactive fallout sp that can be spread in canisters over a territory, killing everyone in it eventually. Cause the, the death rate's like a hundred percent, even kills like the rats and the cockroaches, everything in the region that gets exposed to this will die. And they do experiments on this, like killing animals and things and find, yes, this is a weapon. Great. We have a weapon. They're not in the war, though. This is not a Manhattan Project developed during the war. It's uh, a project developed while the U.S. is still an isolationist bystander in, you know, watching Britain slowly lose a war. So, what's next? Why is this a problem? The problem is this technology is super, super simple. It's not difficult to replicate. And it's just by chance, just by luck, that the U.S. and their scientists got there first. This can be replicated in any country and is probably within days to be replicated by Germany, like, or within weeks, maybe within months. Very quickly, it will be replicated by, the, by another power. And as we'll find out later on, the, well, the Russian politics, we, we can talk about a little bit. Uh, Russia is sort of a black hole or the, the former Soviet Union. It's called the Eurasian Union at this time. Heinlein imagines basically the Soviet Union collapses and is replaced with something called the Fifth Internationalists. 
and then no one really knows what's going on there. Um, they're like a wild card uh, that's thrown into the story at the end. Um, but the idea is like any developed economy could do what we just did. And that means we're kind of fucked because once a weapon will be developed, it will be used. And, and that's going to be the end of humanity. So with great power comes great responsibility. We got to do something about this. And what will that be? Here's the way it's said in the story. It's like this. Well, I'll go back a little bit. This dust as a weapon is not simply sufficient to safeguard the United States. It amounts to a loaded gun held at the head of every man, woman, child on the globe. And then the narrator says, what of it? It's our secret. We got the upper hand. The United States can put a stop to this war and any other war. We can declare a Pax Americana and enforce it. And then Manning replies, I wish it were that easy, but it won't remain our secret. You can count on that. It doesn't matter how successful we regard it. All that anyone needs is a hint given by the dust itself. And then it's just a matter of time until some other nation develops a technique to produce it. You can't stop brains from working, John. The reinvention of the method is a mathematical certainty. Once they know it is what they're looking for, and uranium is a common enough substance widely distributed over the globe. Don't forget it. Um, so you can't have that situation. That situation is uh, impossible. And then he's kind of like, well, the Americans are the good guys, right? And Heinlein here is being very brilliant. He's like, Oh, what about the Mexican War? What about the Spanish-American War? What about U.S. interventions in Central America? We're not the good guys after all. So that kind of is ominous too. So, and I think Heinlein, to his credit, although he's trying to, ultimately what he's doing, he's saying, like, there's a justifiable reason for declaring essentially a military dictatorship in the United States. And it's the cost, it's the price of saving humanity. But, so there's kind of a pro-American undercurrent, but Heinlein is very also saying, look, this history is not promising. States do evil things all the time. And even if we're the good guys, we've done bad things. Imagine the countries that aren't the good guys, aren't democracies. What are they gonna do with the dust? What, is, what would Germany, what would Britain do? There's even a fear here. If Britain got a hold of this, they would just, just devastate Europe. To win the war because they're losing a losing power would use these weapons to win the war so solution unsatisfactory what is the solution the solution is use it destroy berlin and use the time we have which is measured here in days i think they give 90 days or something that they can act before some other country could everyone has airplanes already, develop the dust and use it uh, as revenge or use it to claim global leadership or global power. Use those 90 days or less, weeks, to basically impose force uh, U.S. hegemony on the world. But for the benefit of securing this technology. How long will this have to go on? Well, it's hinted at until mankind matures. Um, so the way it works out is basically they go to Britain with this stuff. They do it, demonstrate it to the British. They then demonstrate it to the Germans. Who There's a new second fewer. Hitler dies at some point. There's some successor. doesn't matter. They display it to the Germans. 
And the Germans are like, yeah, 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 whatever. They don't surrender. So this, in, this leads to De Free, who's sent to Britain as a representative of the U.S. government in this matter. They drop the plane. They, they take the planes, drop, drop the dust over Berlin. Meanwhile, some RAF pilots film it. And some people get the rights to see it. And it's almost instant devastation and death to all life in Berlin, in the city of Berlin. Um, and it had to be done, at least in the, in the context of the story, because only force is going to end the war. Only force is going to give the Americans the time to establish their order. And is this good? None of it is good. Our narrator says when he saw that film by the RAF pilots, who, by the way, died not long after, uh, of exposure to the dust, he says, my soul died that day, never came back. And as we'll find out later, his own exposure to the dust leads to his premature death as well, our narrator. This is like his deathbed confession. All right. It works. Berlin's destroyed. Uh, there's a revolution in... Germany imposing kind of a revived empire, a revived German empire, a Kaiser's a nephew or cousin or something comes back, uh, makes peace with, with the world. Now the timer is set. Once this, once this is out, now this is, if someone did this as a metaphor for the nuclear bomb, it'd be a good story. Heinlein didn't know about the nuclear bomb yet. He's imagining the consequence of radioactivity as a as and the development of it and the harnessing of it which makes it let's be clear this story is prophetic it would be less interesting if it was written in 1946 and just be part of the scientist movement against the against nuclear energy or nuclear bombs or whatever then we get a series of meetings with the cabinet and defreeze is sort of in the cabinet as observer manny's like the yeah, essentially been in the in the unofficial cabinet he's at cabinet meetings as the as the secretary of dust that's how they call it and the question is how do we do this and manning says that what we need to do is basically point this gun at every country and tell them you must give up all your airplanes and the secretary of commerce is like but we need it for trade and manning's like you can't trade if you're dead and then the other one's like, well, I think it's still that Secretary of Commerce. is like, what about the, the, the constitutional rights? And it's like, dead people don't have constitutional rights. We have a constitutional right, right to live. And to preserve life, we must destroy every airplane. That's the only way. Because even if the technology can be delivered, you can maybe prevent its delivery if you don't have airplanes. Airplanes are almost, it's impossible to stop. Once it's, once it's dropped, it can't be stopped. Um, of course, like all the, 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 the fear of terrorists using dirty bombs, was all, it was never like airplanes. It was always like, you know, we're going to sneak it in and blow it up in New York City or something and radiate in New York. But anyways, there's also plans to force other countries not to develop dust. But it basically is every country must surrender uh, and accept this, accept the terms. So Heinlein just writes, like most countries agree. Probably most countries at the time don't even have many airplanes to speak of or are not a well-developed economy yet. The three holdouts or the three problems are Britain, which would, of course, want to protect itself after almost losing this war. 
and sees themselves as a victor in the war, they eventually get uh, coerced uh, into surrendering their airplanes. Japan, which of course is still was one of was fighting its war against China at the time. It's not really mentioned here, but you know Japan is an imperial power at the time, uh, and they get talked into it. Eventually, the emperor accepts this peace plan. Eventually. And then there's the question of the Eurasian Union, essentially the old Soviet Union, which has been replaced. Stalin dies at some point and is replaced with this new government called the Eurasian Union. And they immediately they're like, well, we're not warlike. We're, we want to be good friends with everyone. So we're going to accept it, too. So the plan is essentially the U.S. is going to dominate the world as a sort of a military dictatorship. Now, I want to go back to the meetings. Because one other solution is proffered at the meetings, and it's maybe the most interesting part of this, this center part of the story. It's the Secretary of Labor. So imagine the Secretary of Labor in, uh, in Roosevelt's time is uh, Frances Perkins, right? And she's strongly left of center. She's, she's part of the left wing of the Roosevelt administration, you know, like really involved in a lot of the New Deal stuff. So... Again, in my head, let's just put Frances Perkin there. And she says, although I think it's a he in the story. It doesn't matter. The character says, the Secretary of Labor says, the solution is global civil society, a global democracy. A one state, a one state government, stronger than the UN. right? Or strong, not the UN, League of Nations as compared to. Stronger than the League of Nations but a world government that can have possession of the dust and therefore it won't get used. The only solution is not to have more than one government, to have a single world government, a single global democracy. And Manning says, nice dream, beautiful dream. I would die for this dream, but get out of here. You're being an idiot because the vast majority of humanity doesn't have a history of democracy and is still torn by factional, nationalistic desires. Um, and it's a good dream, but it's not going to happen. If you do this, you're just basically giving the dust to every radical group, every potential tyrant, every disgruntled ethnic minority who wants its political independence or, or every person who doesn't know the ramifications of these of these weapons you've basically made it you went from it being potentially public domain to actually public domain and that will lead to the end of humanity within a few short years if that long it won't take long till humanity is back to the stone age but that dream i mean heinlein was a believer in the un we know this from later stories rocket ship galileo the moon is claimed for the un and the united states only secondarily um he somehow does believe this is a solution i think there is a reading of the story that you say okay well um solution unsatisfactory is what is done here but maybe there's a solution satisfactory potentially now we're you know, in the story, from Arneri's point of view, this is, and Manning's point of view, this is the least worst outcome. But maybe Heinlein thinks there's a different outcome, a much better outcome, an outcome that would be preferable. 
uh, let's let's just put a pin in that. I don't have any. I can't say more about that. But I think it's interesting that an alternative is offered up and seriously debated in the middle of this story. So now implementing the plan. All the planes are brought to. I think there's a couple locations: Shanghai and Kansas, and they're just going to be stored, destroyed, dis dis dismembered. Um, even the United States is not going to be allowed to have airplanes, if, unless they're work, they're, unless they're operated by the U.S. Army. So no civilian aviation of any sort. You can't even risk a terrorist or a mad scientist or a, a, a curious child to, to to having this technology. And um, now the, the, the Eurasian Union says, oh, we're, we're all peace. We love peace. We didn't get involved in that war with, with Germany. We're, we're, we want to be on board. We want to be partners in this new era of peace. Now, we don't know anything about the Eurasian Union, really. It's, it's, we're told it's sort of a black hole. After Stalin died, it became who knows what's going on. Just They call themselves the Fifth Internationalist, which suggests a socialist leaning. But we don't really know. We don't even really get their ideology established. But they bring their planes, and instead of delivering the planes, they dropped dust. They've developed the dust. They've been working on it. And so they were able to develop it first after the United States. So they had the dust, and they developed, they drop it. And then we get what's called a four-day war. Heinlein, wisely, I think, just says, like, oh, the records of that war are well known to all of you readers. It doesn't matter what happens. Essentially, the United States, by luck and attrition, just happened to have more dust available at the time than, than the Eurasian Alliance had, is able to, to win the war. Heavy losses. New York City is destroyed uh, by the dust. And of course, we imagine many Russian cities are also destroyed in the war. It's, it's how we imagine nuclear wars to be. Like, like one-day wars, four-day, you know, it's, it's a four-day war here. But the U.S. wins. It was able to complete its job of enforcing a military dictatorship over, over the planet. A hegemony. And that's, that's kind of the end of the story, except for a coda. There's a couple more things to say about it. One is there's going to be a group of missionaries, Jesuit swords, like from America, kind of like a Peace Corps almost. But their job will be to seek out anyone developing dust, seek out anyone with air, air flight capacities, and then bringing them into the fold. So it has to be maintained through a, a kind of a, a massive global surveillance state. And who's recruited to do it? Well, young people. It's kind of, it didn't sort of remind me of, of the Peace Corps. That's the rhetoric and language used of it. And I think in one of the juveniles, he kind of embraces this same idea of the cadets whose, whose job it is to like sort of maintain peace throughout the, throughout the planet. And really, their real job is to find any developments towards dust or nuclear power or energy or radioactivity and airplane technology because these are the two things together that these two pieces are are the problem one each on their own is okay but together they can't coexist on the same planet but again it's not like you can uncork the bottle and that's basically the end of the story defreeze taught mentions that he gets he got he got cancer he's gonna die can't be treated um, and Manning is sick, 
But there's a, a president dies. The president dies in a plane crash. And a new president comes in and calls Manning in and says, uh, you're dismissed. We don't need you anymore. We don't know why. We don't know what his plan is. He just like Manny, who's in charge of this whole operation, is being canned. And Manning says, I can't, I'm not going to resign. And then the president's like, well, if you're not going to resign, you're fired. And he's like, no, I'm not, sir. You can't fire me. And the president's like, what? How dare you? You, you, uh, you underling. And then Manning reveals that he has planes with dust over Washington, D.C. And he's like, what we did to the rest of the world, I'm doing to you now. You are going to enforce my rule. You're going you're gonna to accept my rule or you're going to die. And that's the end of the story. Manning be- declares himself, becomes essentially a military dictatorship. Did he ever want it? No. He, he was presented as a believer in democracy, a little of a grumpy of a military type but a believer in the potential and the hope of democracy, but technology forced him to dictatorship. It very much reminds me of the roads must roll. It's like once we have the roads, then we must kind of surrender our sovereignty to the technocratic class who can maintain the roads. Right? We've talked about that before in, in that story and blow-ups happen. Now the ending is really kind of touching because he becomes hated. He becomes, Manning becomes the hated military dictator. He's the one who ended American democracy. He's the one who did the coup d'etat. His legacy, his position is forever blighted. And the story ends, patrol he envisioned make it, or sorry, whether or not any man is universally hated as Manning can perfect the patrol he envisioned, make it self-perpetuated and trustworthy, I don't know. Quote. So the question is, like, can this be normalized? Can this really become that world government, that world global democracy? You know, maybe, but it's not going to be around for Manning. It's not going to be around for DeFries. He says, I, I, I don't know. And because of that week of waiting in a buried English hangar, I won't be there to find out. Manning's heart disease makes the outcome even more certain, uncertain. He may last another 20 years. He may kneel over dead tomorrow. And there is no one to take his place. I set this down partly to occupy the short time I have left and partly to show there is another side to any story, even world domination. Not that I would like the outcome either way. If there's anything to this survival after death business, I'm going to look up the man who invented the bow and arrow and take him apart with my bare hands. For myself, I cannot be happy in a world where any man or group of men has the power of death over you and me, our neighbors, every human, every animal, every living thing. And I don't like anyone to have that kind of power and neither does Manning. Um, so fit in anything you want to replace Manning. The U.S. Empire. Is Heinlein saying the U.S. Empire is the worst possible evil? Or the least possible evil, I should say. You know, not good, but what alternative do you pr- propose? Some multipolar polarity where everyone has nuclear weapons aimed at each other? That's going to mean the end of humanity eventually, given enough time. Um, that option's horrible. So we're left with the unsatisfactory solution. And he's saying like, yeah, that's, it's not that Manning wanted that. Manning is not a typical dictator taking power because he wants power. He's unfortunately there. Now, this, this is then going to become a Rorschach's test for anyone 
like thinking about American hegemony, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> in the post-World War world. Was this uh, an evil that was required or was it not? Was there an alternative? Was there another path that could have been taken? Was that meeting the decisive moment in history where the option to, to try global civil society, global democracy, when, when that was abandoned, was that the end? Why was it abandoned? Racism was, Manning says, Chinese don't know how to do democracy. Africans are you know, barely ready for mature political thinking. Europeans, they're just fighting each other over revanchism. Indians, the same as the Chinese, essentially. No, no one's had this experience of democracy, really, except America. So only America can be trusted with this, this technology. So it's essentially a racialist reason for choosing American hegemony. But I, that's why I think the subversive reading of Heinlein might be potent, might be powerful here, is where you say, maybe Heinlein was saying that was the path. That's the way you should have went. That would have led to the more satisfactory solution. Or we can side with Manning and say, no, we, we, we can't risk it. Even if that's right. Even if there's a 1% chance that that global or only a one percent chance that that global democracy program would have failed is that risk worth it it's like a calculation so that sums up the story um i think there's a lot to think about and a lot to to, to ponder about this um, especially about the problem of having a weapon of mass destruction on the planet with states with sovereignty and self-interest. By Heinlein's point of view, we've been living with that, with every nation having a loaded gun for, for 70 years. And he's saying that's not sustainable. Like, how did we manage to make it this far? It, it's really, really kind of surprising. Mutually assured destruction, I suppose, is the answer some people would get. Peace through strength or, or whatever. But it seems luck is involved in that. Um, it reminds me of blow-ups happen, right? Where the idea is, even if there's a small chance that something went wrong, you have to act on that. We can't risk it because the, the, the consequences of, of a mistake, of an accident, are so devastating. This is sort of a sequel to blow-ups happen, I think, in that it's pondering the ramifications of, of atomic power. And the first as a power source here as a weapon. But in both cases, risk aversion is the driving motivator for, for a lot of our characters. So uh, with that, I, I think we've we've sort of, uh, I mean, we'll see where the future stories go, but I feel that, that this story is so significant that it, it does sort of take our study of Heinlein in a new direction. I, I think pieces are fitting together for me. I don't know about you. I don't know if you've read all these stories. Maybe you already have and have your thoughts on it, but but this one is is, is really exciting for me. Um, but let me know what you think. Send me your thoughts and comments. I think there's a lot to to ponder in this story. So um, in the next episode, I think I'm going to take a smaller story on. Uh, the last few have been fairly long, and I think it's just because I'm going through the list. It's it's just chance. But the next story is called They. It's not. It's only. It's, it's about half as long as this one. Um, and I. 
not sure what that one's about. I didn't read it yet, but um, I'll I'll let you know in a few days when I when I do uh, get my teeth into it. So right now I'm pretty excited, and I thank you for listening. And I will we'll see you next time. But in the meantime, send me what you think about this story. You can send me your thoughts at hundredpagescast at gmail.com. So I'll see you later. Thanks. Mm-hmm.